That joy is the theme of our worship and our text today as well. We are in a study of the Gospel of John, and if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, I'm going to John chapter 16, verse 20, down to the end of the chapter. The theme is unconquerable joy. Have that in mind as we read together John 16, starting in verse 20. The Lord Jesus speaking. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you believe now? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen. The grass weathers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray once more, shall we? Our Father in heaven, even as you appointed these words to be spoken by the Lord to give us peace and courage in this world, so now we pray that that peace and courage, and even especially the joy that is our legacy in Christ, might be all the more our present possession. We pray it for his sake. Amen. To be or not to be, that is the question. These words begin perhaps the most famous of William Shakespeare's scenes in which Hamlet, being torn by loneliness and guilt, contemplates suicide, but then shrinks back from it, afraid. He decides against it simply because he does not know what his death might bring him. Will death, he asks, be a deep sleep in which the sea of troubles, the heartache, 
and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to go away, he can't be sure. Maybe death is not extinction at all. And if life goes on after death, he thinks, could things be even worse for him? Conscience, he says, does make cowards of us all. Hamlet is not able to face his own death. The king of terrors, he turns away from it afraid. And in that famous scene, Shakespeare expressed for all time that great, often unspoken, question of human life. What will death bring? We'd rather not reckon with death. But one man's resurrection puts the matter of your death before you in a new way. Yes, death is the great fact that looms over every human life in this world. Death is a fearful thing. Death is a terrible thing. It is to be avoided at all costs. No matter how many thousands of dollars is needed for that life-saving operation, we will spend it. Yet it is something that we want to think about otherwise as little as we possibly can. Rightly does the Bible speak elsewhere of those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It is a kind of bondage. And so we don't even want to reckon with death. But we are very interested if there is any possibility that it might not, in fact, be the end. The first time that Harvard professor Edwin Schneidman a few years ago taught a course on death, 200 undergraduates showed up in a classroom that was only seating 20. Death is an uncomfortable challenge but one that we would be very eager to resolve. And Christ's resurrection, like nothing else, challenges us to face this question of death. Can you remain indifferent when someone has risen from the dead? Can you act as though it doesn't matter? Now, people maybe do it all the time, but is it sane? Is it wise? Is it right to do so? Someone who rises from the dead should not be ignored, especially and even when he says that he is the Son of God and that if you put your trust in him, you will not taste death. He says that he is the only Savior of sinners, that he's coming again, that he will raise all men from the dead and be the judge of all the earth. Yes, a man who says such things and then rises from the dead is a man that cannot be ignored. But what does he say? Here we have in this passage before us the very last words that Jesus speaks to his disciples before they go out and he is arrested and put on trial and crucified. This is the last teaching as he prepares his disciples for their overwhelming sorrow that they would now experience, he says, in the next few hours. As they watched him arrested and mocked and scourged and crucified, their world was about to come crashing down Upon them, they had put their hopes, they had staked their futures on their belief that Jesus was truly the promised Messiah of Israel. The previous Sunday, their hopes were fanned into high flame as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and as the crowd sang hosannas to his name. But everything that they had hoped for was now coming to a sudden, shocking end. 
as they are about to watch the Lord die. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful. Even in the years ahead, as Jesus concludes the passage in this world, he says, you will have tribulation. But he says there's an answer to that sorrow, to that tribulation. I don't want to pass by the problem too quickly. Let's briefly consider first the earthly tribulation that he speaks about. But then the body of our sermon today will be on unconquerable joy. Unconquerable joy, which is the answer to the great question. First, earthly tribulation. We need to face reality. Jesus speaks in this passage of tribulation, of confusion, disappointment, failure, and ultimately death. Death is the wage that sin pays, and as we prayed earlier, Christ has not taken away death itself. The sting of death is gone, but not the fact of death. And the pain of death, that is what remains with us. We will experience deep sorrow. And there's nothing unspiritual about deep sorrow in such a time of loss. These disciples didn't understand yet what the Lord was saying, even when they thought that they did. Now we are sure, they say in the passage, by this we believe. Do you believe, Jesus asks. I tell you, the hour is coming, yes, is now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone that the Father is with me. The truth is, these disciples that that had been with them for so many years, they were still confused over what Jesus was saying to them, even at the end. They would be much more deeply confused in the next several hours as they watched their beloved Lord be arrested and suffer this most shameful and painful death. They could not conceive of a Messiah that would come and die. But the point is, being a Christian does not insulate us either from the experience of sorrow, pain, loss. It does not exempt us, no matter how long we've been with the Lord, from confusion, even spiritual failure. It's a tribute to a musician when he can take a very imperfect instrument and make a sublime noise, and it's a tribute to a surgeon when he can perform a difficult operation in primitive conditions, like maybe in a remote missionary outpost station, without all the medical advances that are now so available here at home. Even more so, it's a tribute to our Lord that he can take such imperfect instruments and use them to advance his kingdom in the world. We, too, will experience failure. We, too, will seem confident when we are really confused. We will have tribulation. We will suffer loss. We will weep. Death, the king of terrors, will do its awful work in the world. And the reality that the disciples would face is set squarely before them. Obviously, I could go on and even subdivide it into many points, but that's not what we are here to see today. We need to face this reality. But my emphasis to you today is that we need to face another reality, a far greater reality. 
as we come secondly to unconquerable joy. Unconquerable joy. Verse 20, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Verse 22, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. These fearful and confused, defeated men would soon become unconquerably happy, unstoppably bold even. And he gives us then five ways in which he will turn our sorrow, as well as theirs, into unconquerable joy. And these are the things I'd like to emphasize from the passage for you today. Jesus turns our sorrow into unconquerable joy when we meet the living Lord. When we meet the living Lord. Verse 22, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. When these disciples watched Jesus die, all their hopes died with him. But what was it that turned their dark night of sorrow into the bright morning of joy? It was this, They met the risen Christ. And on that resurrection Sunday, in a flash, crushing defeat was turned into total victory. Death had not overcome him. Jesus was alive, thrilling news and exhilarating. They had never been so despairing, but now they had never been so happy. It was the most joyful thing in the world, the most joyful thing that had ever happened to them. He wasn't dead he was alive forevermore in a flash. In the flesh, in the, li- the living Lord met them to reign, to bless them, to be with them and to help them, to teach and direct them. A man who has defeated death itself was just the man that they needed then to lead them through life, even to everlasting bliss. And therefore, every sermon that they preach, every sermon we read in the book of Acts centers on the resurrection, as one man pointed out to me. The message that flashed across the ancient world, that set hearts on fire, that changed lives, that turned the world upside down. Do you know what it was? It was not love your neighbor, as important as that was, but every morally sane person already knew that that was their duty. That was not news. The news was that a man who claimed to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world had risen from the dead in full sight of men. Jesus was alive. They had met the Lord. Hundreds of people then were soon saying the same thing as well, telling everyone what he had said to them, the things that Jesus had done. One report, then two, then three might be discredited, but then the news was coming from all sides. And when such marvelous things were happening, people could not stop talking about them. A man has overcome death, Jesus of Nazareth, who said he was the Son of God. He has not passed away. He will not be remembered henceforth as an interesting figure of history. He is the living Lord. He was alive for them to love and worship, to hear their prayers, he says here, to trust in times of need to be alive with them always, even to the end of the age. Now that is unconquerable joy. Do you want to know that joy too? Wouldn't you have loved to have known and seen Jesus of Nazareth, to know this man who was unquestionably the most important, the most influential person in the whole history of the world? Well, the astonishing thing is because of the resurrection, my friend, 
you too can know him. And you too will see him. The very same Jesus who is crucified under Pontius Pilate is alive. People meet him every day. The resurrection declares to the world that he lives and reigns forever as God with us, Emmanuel, who has come to die for our sins, but to raise us to eternal life in him. And so the most obvious, but perhaps the most important truth of the passage that I hope will impress itself upon every last one of you here, that not one of you should leave without unconquerable joy because you have met the Lord and Jesus is alive. Second, Jesus turns our sorrow into joy by showing us the glory of the cross, by showing us the glory of the cross. It's kind of a sideways statement here, but he says in verse 21, by way of analogy, a woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy the joy that a human being has been born into the world. He's using an analogy of a woman in labor to explain how he will turn their sorrow into joy. Not that joy will follow the sorrow or anything like that. The sorrow is not going to be replaced by joy, but their sorrow will become their joy. He will turn their sorrow into joy. A woman who cries out in anguish one minute will be beaming with joy the very next minute because of the same thing, namely the pain of her newborn baby. In the same way, before Jesus' resurrection, this death was the cause of their sadness. The cross was an utter tragedy. They experienced profound sorrow to see their beloved Lord first beaten and bloodied, then hanging on the cross. It was probably the most horrible event of their lives. The cross was their greatest sorrow until Jesus rose from the dead. And at last they understood that the the cross was not a tragedy. It was a triumph. They understood what John the Baptist meant, that behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very thing that had caused their sorrow was now their joy. He turned their sorrow into joy. It's interesting, when you read the New Testament, you find that after the resurrection, the cross is never described in any tone of sorrow horrible as it obviously was, but it became their source of unconquerable joy. Paul speaks about it as his glory, his only boast. And there on the cross, my sins were taken away and nailed there with Jesus, the just for the unjust. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the triumphant note And so the rest of the Bible doesn't portray the cross in these depressing, mournful tones that you would rightly expect, but rather in the most joyful, triumphant, victorious notes. For this that was their sorrow has become their chief joy. It became the center of their preaching, for on that cross, Christ suffered for sin. The wages of sin is death. And now he is the source of eternal life to all who look to him. Jesus turns our sorrow into joy by showing us the glory of the cross. Third, Jesus turns our sorrow into joy by overcoming the world. 
He says in verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The world that rejected Jesus in a great reversal is now ruled by him. And on the day of his return supremely, the sick will be made well by Jesus, the lame will run to Jesus, the blind will see Jesus with their own eyes, the deaf will hear Jesus, the hungry will dine with Jesus, the weeping will be embraced by Jesus, the poor will be rich with Jesus, the humble will be raised with Jesus, the victims will have justice through Jesus, the dead will rise to live forever with Jesus. There is, in other words, nothing that the world could do to Jesus. There is nothing that the world can do to you or me that Jesus will not undo. He has overcome the world and all of its attempts to destroy his work. Be of good cheer, he says. Be of good cheer. In fact, with only one exception, whenever we read those words in Scripture, be of good cheer, or some of you have, uh, take courage. They come from the lips of our Lord. Matthew 9, he says to a paralytic, be of good cheer, son, your sins are, for, 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 are forgiven. Or later to a suffering woman, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. Or to the frightened disciples who see him walking on the water, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Or after Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, as we read a few weeks ago, he didn't know how his future would turn out, and there was a time of anguish, and the Lord appeared and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have solemnly witnessed to me in Jerusalem, so you will witness to me in Rome also. And here he tells the disciples who are so confused, who are about to fail, take courage, be of good cheer. In him you'll have peace. He, to sum up all these passages, Jesus is saying that we can be of good cheer. We can be encouraged in our Lord's pardon. Matthew 9, 2, his power, 22, his presence, Mark, Matthew 14, 27, his purpose, Acts 23, 11, and his peace here in John 16, 33. Pardon, power, presence, purpose, peace. That'd be a good sermon series. He's not just a savior who can help us. He's a Savior who will resurrect us. And these disciples, as the country song says, will henceforth live like they were dying. They will devote themselves without fear, without reserve, to the work of Jesus that he's given to them to do. The time was short, the work was great, and it was no time for fear. They had peace in the midst of their tribulation. And you know that he who loses his life in this world will find it. The poet said of the Apostle Paul, He who can part from country and from kin and scorn delights and tread the thorny way, a heavenly crown through toil and pain to win, he who reviled can tender love repay and buffeted for bitter foes can pray, he who uns... Un <laughs> unspringing at his captain's call, fights the good fight and win at the last day of fiery trial comes, can nobly fall. Of such a saint or more, 
the Apostle Paul. Such is every believer, every disciple who overcomes the world in Jesus. When they know that there is nothing this world can do that he will not undo. Life lived for a great cause. Life lived at great risk even with tribulation and the prospect of death faced squarely. Life lived in the sure and certain hope of eternity beyond the grave in Jesus. That is the Christian life in a nutshell. This is living in light of the resurrection, a life of overcoming the world, which is a cause for unconquerable joy. Fourth, Jesus turns our sorrow into joy by teaching us to live in light of eternity. Teaching us to live in light of eternity. Your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Or as we read earlier, uh, Jesus opened the scriptures to show them how the Messiah first needed to suffer and then enter into his glory. And in many other ways, this eternal perspective that's going to dawn on them will bring them this unconquerable joy. It's easy for us to think about the things that are before us every day, the problems we eat, we sleep, we work, we play. It's possible for us to focus so much on these things that we conclude that this is really what life is all about. We might even say, as Paul put it, we might as well eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Or as Alexander White used to say, we, we just hang heavy weights on the thinnest wires, meaning that we hang our, our happiness, our very reason for living, upon fragile things that are easily and quickly taken from us. Health, homes, mates, children, jobs, possessions. Good blessings from the Lord, but inadequate as any foundation for lasting joy because they are soon doomed to fail. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ comes to put a stop to that empty way of life. It's the undeniable demonstration that this world, that this short life, is not the end. It is but the beginning. And what's more, there is a world to come that lasts forever and that is infinitely more important than this one, even though we can't yet see it or touch it. It is Christ's resurrection that teaches us however much we may prosper in this life, however happy we may be in a superficial way, if we are not prepared for a far more important life to come, that our lives are nothing short of catastrophes. As a philosopher said, as Jeff quoted earlier, if Christ has risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, well, nothing else matters. Psalm 73, Asaph was in agony, depressed, seeing the prosperity of the wicked every day. He himself chastened. He would be very much at home in our world today, I think. He was about to despair until he went into the sanctuary, and there, he says, he remembered the end of the wicked and how God was the eternal portion of the godly. And that change in perspective turned his sorrow into joy. He says, Whom have I in the heavens high but thee, O Lord, alone, and on the earth whom I desire? 
Besides thee there is none. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jonathan Edwards has a sermon on that passage where he, he calls it God the best portion of a Christian and writes, hence we may learn that whatever changes a godly man passes through, he's happy because God, who's unchangeable, is his chosen portion. Though he meet with temporal losses and be deprived of many, yes, of all his temporal enjoyments, yet God, whom he prefers before all, still remains and can't be lost. His chosen portion on which he builds his main foundation for happiness is above the world and above all changes. And when he goes into another world, still he is happy because that portion yet remains. How great is the happiness of those who have chosen the fountain of all good, who prefer him before all things in heaven and earth, who can never be deprived of him to all eternity. Jesus is bringing this change in perspective, you see. The joy that I'm going to give, no man can take away. An unconquerable joy as we live in the light of his life, of his eternity. Well, concerning life and death, the world has lots of promises full of emptiness. Christ's tomb, full of emptiness, full of promises. Finally, fifth, Jesus turns our sorrow into joy by answering our every desire. He turns our sorrow into joy by answering our every desire. Verse 23, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Here Jesus repeats the promise to his disciples to answer their prayers in his name. And as we've seen, to ask in his name is to ask in line with his will for his kingdom and glory and so forth. But the triumph of joy. Every every desire is to be satisfied in Jesus. Every longing is to be met through Jesus. How does that work, you say? I've been praying, I've been praying, I've been in anguish over so-and-so or over such-and-such. How is it that he can promise such fullness of joy in every answer to every prayer? Some of you on the radio have listened to Tony Evans with Prophet as I have the Urban Alternative His son, Jonathan, gave a very moving testimony at his mother's funeral. I wish I could say it, preach it like he did. Jonathan Edwards, excuse me, Jonathan Evans, small difference. He said this at her funeral. I was wrestling with God because I said, if we have victory in your name, Why didn't you hear us when we were praying? Didn't you see the cancer? Didn't you hear us? Why didn't you do what we were asking of you? Because your word says, 
If we abide in you and your word abides in us, we can ask whatever we will and it will be given to us. Your word tells us that if we ask according to your will, that you hear us. Your word is telling us in Mark 11 that if you pray believing, you will receive to be anxious for nothing but through prayer and supplication to make your request known. Where are you? I was wrestling with God the last few days because... This was a great opportunity that we can tangibly see your glory. Everybody was praying, not only in Dallas, but around the country, around the world. People were watching. Where are you? This was an opportunity to see your glory. And as I was wrestling with God, he answered and he said, number one, you don't understand the nature of my victory. Just because I didn't answer your prayer your way doesn't mean that I haven't already answered your prayer anyway. Because victory was already given to your mom. You don't understand because of the victory I have given to you. There, were, there was always only two answers to your prayers. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live, or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family, or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of, or she was going to be well taken care of. Victory belongs to me because of what I have already done for you. Two answers to your prayer are yes and yes, because victory belongs to Jesus. Now, in his church, they burst out in applause, but you know. <laughs> this is the victory. And we don't understand the victory sometimes. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. What have we longed for that he will not give us? It might be yes, or it might be yes. But he has turned the inevitability of death into the invincibility of life. And every longing, every desire... He will surely grant, maybe now, maybe later, maybe temporarily, maybe eternally. And the day will come when the king returns to claim his throne. And on that day, we will join our voices and sing, You are worthy, O God, for you were, O Lord, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth and all creation will echo with the great Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this living hope that you have given to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, through which we were able to see a true victory to everlasting joy. We thank you for these truths that have been revealed to us in this very passage to give us peace in the midst of tribulation, to give us good cheer in the midst of all of our sorrowing, in the midst of all of our failure and all of our struggle, we pray that your Son, our Redeemer, might again lift our heads, even this very day. We pray that the one who has come here with particular needs would find particular joy in such an answer. We, find, we pray that the one who came here without hope and without God in the world would leave here today with a brand new joy that cannot be taken away from him or her.
We pray that this same joy of the risen Jesus might abide in all of your children. It is our birthright. Oh, may the Holy Spirit, whose fruit is love and joy and peace, have his will in his people today.